And now you can turn to the Song of Solomon. I'll be preaching in our regular series from that. We'll continue that series. We've had a couple of weeks away from the Song of Songs with special sermons related to the affliction that our gracious Lord has sent to us in His sovereign wisdom. At first, when I was thinking of returning to the Song of Solomon, it seemed a little out of place to return to a series on a book that speaks of our Lord's ardent affection for us and of our reciprocal delight in Him. But as I continued to study and meditate on the text before us, I realized afresh how much we need to look at this subject and at this time, at this very time. It is in times when God has sent affliction upon his church and our nation that as his elect people, we especially need to know that we are greatly beloved. We're greatly beloved if we're among his chosen remnant. Like Daniel, we need to associate with the whole church and with our nation in our sin, confessing our corporate guilt that has brought down God's hand of wrath and displeasure on us with the afflictions that we're bearing. These things don't happen just at random or or apart from God's hand. He visits us with these things to call us to repentance. We need to confess our corporate sins as well as our personal sins at these times. But all the while, we need to rest. Rest in the grace that we have through Jesus Christ as those who believe, knowing that God loves us and that Christ loves us and that he will bring good to us through all of the hard things. Daniel had to know that when he was taken into exile in Babylon, separated from his family, made a eunuch, his family plans destroyed. He had to go and serve as a eunuch to the king. And yet he trusted God and and God blessed him even in Babylon. It is wonderful that Daniel in all of his afflictions as an exile in in Babylon is assured repeatedly in the time when he is lamenting the state of the church that he is greatly beloved. In Daniel 9.23, Daniel 10.11, and Daniel 10.19, he is told that he is greatly beloved. The example of the third time, Daniel 10.19, it says, the Lord said, Oh, or the angel said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Daniel knew that his acceptance was not based on his own righteousness. You can see that in his prayer in Daniel 9. But on the mercy of God promised in Jesus Christ. Now, don't be confused. I'm not preaching from Daniel 9. I just wanted to point out the suitability of looking especially at God's love to us in a time when we have been lamenting and praying and fasting. Yes, my brothers and sisters, I again have the sense that I conveyed to you when we first began this series that we right now need a song. This, This is what I said to you at that time. We need a song. I think that right about now, the whole church needs a song. We have been dragging along in our devotion and service to God. We have been irritated and annoyed by many things. We don't as much need calls to repent just now, but rather the setting forth of the gracious relationship that God sustains with his people by grace in Jesus. 
I think the entire church needs this, and I think the Reformed Church especially needs this, and probably has needed it for a while. We need a song, an excellent song about love, about beautiful love, not about the duty of love, but about being loved and about the love that we already have by His grace, but seldom recognize. My brothers and sisters, let us hear our text for today from the Song of Solomon's and let us be refreshed in our Redeemer's love and in the effect that it has on us of drawing forth love from our hearts, if indeed we are his people. Our text is Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. Every time when I'm preparing these sermons, I think, oh, um, I'm going to go from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, and then I get working on it and end up doing less than I had planned. This is God's precious word, and he, is, he, he himself calls it the Song of Songs. So give eager and, and reverent attention as I read to you, again, beginning in Song of Solomon one twelve. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Injeti. Praise the Lord for these encouraging words. Here, the bride of Christ, the church, speaks of how our Lord causes her love for him to flow out from her like a sweet, pervasive aroma. May our Lord bless us now as we consider these words as his people, a congregation of his people. The opening words speak of the king at his table. Verse 12, while the king is at his table. Those are the words. First, let's consider the interpretation of these words. In the context of the Song of Songs that we have been looking at so far, the king is King Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah. We have seen in previous sermons that the Song of Solomon is an allegory that depicts in poetry the love between Christ and his church. The Jews understood it in this way, and so did the church until more recent times when many shied away from the allegorical interpretation for various reasons, some of them very poor reasons. Sound biblical interpretation does not allow us to allegorically interpret scriptures unless the passage has been given as an allegory. For example, when the scripture speaks of Jesus as our shepherd who leads us in green pastures, we know that it is an allegory and we are right to interpret it as such. We go wrong with allegory, however, when we take a historical passage and impose some kind of allegorical meaning on it to make it the meaning of the passage, such as Origen, the uh, early church father, who, who said that, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the wounded man is Adam, the Samaritan is Christ, the priest is the law, the donkey is the body of Christ, the inn is the church, and so on and so on, when Jesus is clearly teaching in that passage about loving our neighbor and about the duty and responsibility that we have to love our neighbor. But we have very good warrant at the same time, for taking the Song of Solomon as an allegory. Since the Holy Spirit calls this the Song of Songs, 
we would expect it in the first place to be about the most excellent of subjects, the most excellent of all relationships, and that is our relationship with Christ. Furthermore, the song simply does not read like a historical account. You have the bride running through town in the middle of the night looking for her husband and getting beaten up by the watchman. And is she supposed to be Solomon's wife that's doing this? And uh, he comes to the door and she doesn't let him in. And then he's, he goes off and she's running around looking for him. And, and then we have her encouraging other women to pursue her husband and to enjoy his love with her all through the psalm, delighting in them coming into the chambers and rejoicing in his love with her. Furthermore, it's not as though we find this analogy of Christ as the loving husband of his church who, is, who has conjugal relations with her is if we don't find that all through the scripture. It's an allegory that appears again and again in the Bible. In the Psalms, we have Psalm 45, which we just sang, that uses the same allegory. Ezekiel 16 is a lengthy example of the same that speaks of the Lord taking us as his people when we were naked and uncared for, tenderly washing us, loving us, taking us as his bride, adorning us, and then of our giving ourselves as a harlot to the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Hosea is an entire book that presents the church as an adulterous bride of Christ. Isaiah frequently uses this analogy to talk about Israel's sin, but he uses the analogy also of Christ as our husband to talk about the fruitfulness that we have who are barren through our marriage with him and that now we bring forth many children by him. When Jesus comes, he calls himself the bridegroom and speaks of the church as his betrothed virgin. Revelation speaks of the church in this way and shows that when Jesus returns, the bride will be presented as the lamb's wife, as Jerusalem coming down from heaven adorned for her husband. Those who deny the allegorical interpretation have some trouble with the text that we are, is before us today because it speaks here of the husband, the man, as the king. If that is so, if he is a king, why is he otherwise seen to be a rustic shepherd out in the sun, tending his flock all through the day? David tended sheep before he became king, but Solomon was raised in the palace. How could this be used as a historical example of Solomon? Some say that it's not Solomon, that it's the other way around, that some say that she only calls this man that she loves the king in a way that husbands and wives might do in their, in their play and love with each other. For example, a father might call his little daughter my princess, or he might call his wife his queen, or, or something like that. And so she refers to her husband, whom she admires as the king, because of uh, the way. But this doesn't comport with all the other things that we see of him, where things of the palace, things of wealth and riches. Um, but if we see this as an allegory about Jesus Christ, it is perfectly fitting to have him tending his flock in the uh, with his tent and and then also at the same time sitting in a finely furnished palace and enjoying the fragrance of expensive perfumes and precious jewels. Jesus does all of that in an allegorical way. As his bride, the church, we are to see in today's text that the king 
the one who is called the king, we're looking at the words, the king, is Jesus the Messiah. It is for us to greatly delight in him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. A wife who has a husband who is the king is honored by that. Though we are dark and lowly, he has taken us to be his bride. He has been given authority over all things in heaven and earth, and he will reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool. This great king is our husband, who ardently loves us, is his own wife. We are also told here that he is at his table. The word translated table here in our version is translated by the word couch in some other translations. I want to say this because you may have a translation that says that. The the Hebrew word is a rare word that is only used five times in the Bible. Literally, it means either that which encircles something or that which is encircled. So the conclusion of the translators is that it either refers to the couches or chairs around a table, or it refers to the table itself around which the chairs are placed. It really doesn't make too much difference either way. What is portrayed here is the king sitting around his table, having table fellowship with his more intimate companions. It is not a large table, but a table around which they are, they are sitting. What should we think of when we think of King Jesus at his table in the Song of Songs then? We should think of many excellent things that we enjoy at his table, the king's table. We should think of the pleasant experience of eating at his table. Isaiah 25, 6 says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. It is eating and eating together that we especially enjoy the fellowship of our companions, that we enjoy conversation. Husbands and wives enjoy going to eat together. They delight in each other's company. And there is none who can be more delightsome to us than the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 3.20, he promises to have table fellowship with us as we saw. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. We should also think of the conversation at the table that both enriches and delights us. Our king tells us of what he has done to save us and of how secure we are in the inheritance that he has prepared for us, the house that he has prepared for us. He tells us of his love. He gives us good counsel. He directs us in our sorrows. He helps, he speaks of his plan plans that he has, that he, what he's going to do in his kingdom. He tells us of the glory of his house, of his coming kingdom, of his children, of his display of himself in glory that is going to come, and of our perfection and our glorification with him. In Luke twenty-two twenty-three through 30, Jesus says, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, that's what he says to his bride, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom. And we should think of nourishment with the very best of foods. A table is a place of provision, and this is especially so with King Jesus. He gives us water that if we drink, 
we will never thirst again. He gives us himself as bread that gives us eternal life if we eat to his eternal life to his bride. He gives us all that we need to sustain us as his bride. And that's a lot. Proverbs 9, 1 through 6 speaks of Jesus as the wisdom of God. And it says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. Likewise, Psalm 23, which we will sing later, tells us of how he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, of how our cup runs over, of how he anoints us with oil, fragrant oil at that table, of how we lack nothing when he is our shepherd, that he leads us in the green pastures and beside the still waters. We should think of his table as his ordinances that enrich us and comfort us. Of course, the first thing that we think of, and perhaps rightly so, is the Lord's table. It's very right. At the Lord's table, he shows us his love, how he has made an offering for our sins, what his plans are, how he has redeemed us, how we are accepted in him. He tells us that by his sacrifice, we have forgiveness and eternal life. He tells us to eat of his sacrifice for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, for our enrichment. Everything about the table is is represented to us there. Our table fellowship is with him is well represented at the communion table. But his table involves more than the communion table. It is in every way that he provides for us. It includes all of his ordinances, whether used publicly or privately. The hearing of his word, his word read, his word preached to us, the singing of praise to him, where we show our delight in him, whether you're singing as you are alone or whether you're singing in the great assembly, the prayers we pour forth to him, both of thanksgiving and of petition, corporately and privately, he hears all of these. We have communion with him at his table, as it were, in all of these ways. Truly, it is a sweet and excellent thing to have table fellowship with King Jesus. As the song moves on, the bride tells us what happens to her when she is with the king at his table. The church at the table of King Jesus sends forth the fragrance of her spikenard. You can see that in the rest of the first verse. Let me read the whole thing because the two are related. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. Spikenard. Spikenard is a very precious fragrance that the wealthy provided for their guests when they dined with them. George, George Burroughs says, The spikenard was a very precious and costly ungent obtained in Judea by foreign commerce from the eastern coast of Africa and from India. The ointment of spikenard used by Mary, John 12, 3, that we read earlier, was, quote, very costly. And Horace, who lived in the same age, promises Virgil a whole caddis 
about nine gallons of wine for a small onyx box full of spikenard. It required a lot of labor and a lot of plants to extract this oil. That is what made it so expensive. John tells us in his account about Mary's spikenard, that the spikenard that she poured out in the room and poured out upon Jesus was worth a full year's wages. Think of that. We saw in John 12 how when Mary broke open the bottle of spikenard and poured it out on Jesus, that the whole room was full, filled with the delightful essence. Though Mary was criticized because of the great cost of this precious oil, Jesus expressed delight in what she had done. Nothing is too extravagant for him. It was an expression of her deep affection for him. It was a preparation for his burial. The spikenard in the Song of Solomon is used to refer to the outflowing of the affection of the king's bride toward him. What a beautiful way it is of describing what happens when a woman is in the presence of the one that she loves and admires. Her affection is very present in that room. It is very evident. It is very potent, like a fragrance. She doesn't even have to speak, and it is seen. The whole room is filled with the fragrance of her delight in her husband, and, uh, and, and it delights all who love him. It delights him, and it delights all those who love him to see her love. There is an aroma, an aura that is lovely and obvious to all, though to some it is offensive because of their jealousy, either because they as a, another woman see this woman as, as a foolish, silly woman because they know that they don't have such affection for their husband and they suppose it to be something artificial or jealousy for the men because they could wish that this affection of this woman was for them, that they have adulterous eyes and they want her to look this way at them instead of at, the, at her husband. Or because they want such affection from their wife and they know that they don't have it and they are bitter toward their wife and drive her even further away. Note the time when her affection flows forth. It is when the king is at his table. When we are with Christ, receiving his ordinances, receiving his life-giving blessing and the fruit of his ordinances, the fruit that they produce, when we are receiving the assurance of his love and the testimony of his plans to keep us with him forever and to bless us forever, I say it is then that our affection flows forth for him in all of its fullness. It is an affection that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit responding to his word of grace, by his word and sacrament. We are enriched because our excellent husband has lavished his grace on us, and he and all of his friends delight in the return of our affection to him. You all know how glad it makes you as a Christian when you see one who has been cold toward him, now loving him. The sweet fragrance fills the room of one who is now delighting in their Lord instead of bitter and hard toward him. 
You know that our king is worthy of that love and it makes you glad. You know that he has done a great work for this one. And even more, you know how glad it makes you when he draws forth the fragrance of your affection. You know that it is not affection for one whose virtues, about whose virtues you are mistaken. You know that it is not affection that is misplaced or that is overwrought. It is but the beginning of the outflowing of the love which, of which he is worthy and which will ever grow and increase in all eternity. How is it then with you? What flows out from your heart toward the king? Is it a stench or is it a sweet aroma? Is it the terrible stench of bitterness toward him, of resentment, of disappointment, of hostility even, of mistrust, even of malice? You have all seen the vile passions of a bitter woman. How, how, what, what, what a wretched thing it is. Or, or of an apostate disciple that, that fills the room with, with bitterness and opposition toward the Lord of glory. Perhaps you have such thoughts toward Christ. Or maybe it is that there is just nothing there. No affection where strong affection ought to be. Instead of trust in his care, there is anxiety. There is fear. There is insecurity as if he's not a a husband who who will protect you and who will care for you. A husband whose whose promises are true, who who really will use those afflictions. You say, oh, I can't believe that. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too afraid of these things. Your heart is lukewarm, perhaps. Your zeal is quenched. Your love has grown cold for him. There is little happiness in your relationship with him. Perhaps his cross means very little to you. His love does nothing for you. His promises are of no great importance to you. Maybe there is no desire in you to pour out your heart toward him, to pour out your affection. What Mary did is, is offensive to you. Why would she do that? Like, like Judas. I tell you, lament if this is so with you. Lament, but do not despair. King Jesus is very gracious. He, he beckons you to come to him and receive life. Come to him and ask him. And he will restore in you or create in you altogether that love to to which he is due. Come to his ordinances with yearning. Perhaps you've been coming in a careless and indifferent way without any preparation, without any seeking or searching of, of his blessing. Put away your sin from your life, your rebellion, your idols, and tell him that you're his forever. If you have eyes for other lovers, You can't expect to have eyes for him. Yes, put yourself into his hands for cleansing, for renewal, for forgiveness, because he is the Savior at his table. He is there to to bring forth the best in you. Let go of whatever you're holding on to idolatrously or, or resistantly of him and melt into his arms, melt into his into his love. Come to him. And he will even give it to you for the first time if you have never had it. He is able to save to the uttermost that which is lost. His grace is a grace that transforms even the most wretched of sinners. 
what beauty emerges from the church because of the bride's excellent love, because of her excellent husband. Though it is politically incorrect to say it, it is biblically correct and therefore true that when a husband truly loves and cherishes his wife, then he brings out the fragrance of her love. The husbands who are able to love their wives in this way as Christ loves the church are the ones who themselves have such affection for Christ as their husband. In other words, they are as a bride to Christ, delighting in his affection for them, and then they're able to render that affection more effectively to their wife this does not mean, of course, if a husband is not like that, that, uh, that wives with wretched husbands have warrant to excuse their own bitterness, their own hostility, their own hardness, their own insubordination, because their husband has not loved them as he should. Such wives are instructed, rather, from God's word to look to Jesus where, where they have another husband, a husband who is more important, a husband forever, who, if they will look to him and trust, will draw out their spikenard as a sweet fragrance rather than their bitterness and their insubordination and their hardness. What a beautiful thing, the sweet aroma of Christ. It, it shows itself when we have it in our relationships with each other as husband and wife. The song continues in verse 13 and 14 with the bride describing how delighted she is with Jesus, her husband. And she does so under two beautiful figures. In verse 13, she says, the first figure, A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. This speaks of a, the little sachet or, or pouch of perfume that, that women often wore in those days or around their neck, on a chain around their neck and hung between their breasts. A, a little sachet that was filled with myrrh. The aroma of myrrh was very pleasing and invigorating. It was even considered to promote health and, and probably did so. Of course, different oils and scents could be used, but myrrh was one of the finest and the most cherished. It is a gum that oozes from the cracks from the bark and the kind of a shrub of myrrh. It, it, it is, it's very, very uh, precious, very costly, like the spike nerd that we saw. Normally, this little sachet would be removed at night, but this woman is so pleased with it that she keeps it between her breasts all night. Night and day, it is with her. A single word that means to lodge or to stay with is translated here, lies all night. It is the same word that is used in Psalm 91, where it speaks of the blessedness of the one who abides who lodges, who stays the night, who dwells, who remains under the shadow of the Almighty. She says that her husband is like a sachet of myrrh to her. She wants to keep him with the sweet fragrance of his life-giving, invigorating, comforting, delighting grace near to her heart. George, Bor George Bor Burroughs says, the love of Jesus, the truths, thoughts, consolations, and influences of the Holy Spirit exhale and roll through all the channels of the soul, 
with a soothing, exhilarating power and diffuse there and diffuse there as much as is now possible to be enjoyed this side of heaven. She cherishes him and does not want to let him and the influence of his spirit leave her. It is something that she delights in. My brothers and sisters, as the bride of Christ, it is ours to live in the aroma of his life-giving love and grace that we might have the spikenard go forth from us. We are to cherish him and to jealously guard against anything that would interfere with dwelling in the fragrance of his love. We are not to let anything else take his place in the little chain around our neck. You are to live in the aroma of his sweet grace. You are to meditate on his word day and night, to receive his love, to keep yourself from idols and from the lust of other things. When you are disappointed, turn to him. Consider his love to to you and disappointment will end. When you're angry, turn to him and remember that he is the one who rescued you from hell. You've got nothing to be angry about. Despite He rescued you despite your unworthiness. When you're afraid and anxious, rest in his promises. Do not act as if he is uncaring or if he's unable to act for you or as if the plans that he has told you that he has for you are not true. You don't have to worry of the future. If you trust in him, it is sinful to worry of the future. He tells us so. It's not pleasing to him. When lust comes knocking, remember what he is to you. Like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife tempted him as a young man in the the prime of his vigor and youth, this woman came and tempted him. And he said, how can I do this great sin against God? He kept the sachet of myrrh between his breasts. When entered, when, when enticed by the word, be like Moses, who by faith refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? Because he esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. His treasure was Christ not something else. The second comparison that the woman makes is with a cluster of henna blooms. She says, My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms or blooms in the vineyard of Ingeti. You know how you often associate certain things with certain pleasant experiences. I remember the the hamburgers with the onion soup mix that my mother used to make when I came home from university. It's an association that I have with home. Likewise, I remember the warm sun and the smell of the salt air with the great fondness, with great fondness that I had when we went from the mountains of North Carolina to, to Florida, to Daytona Beach, Florida, where my grandmother had a little beach house. I remember with fondness the wooden floors that were painted with a kind of an aqua color and the roach pills that were around the edges of the room to to kill the roaches and the screen ports that was lined with rocking chairs. All of these are associations that I have with a pleasant place. Injeti was such a place. It was an oasis in the desert. 
It had a supply of water to it. It was known for its vineyards, which flourished in the desert sun combined with the water. It was a delightful place to visit in the time of Solomon. And here the bride remembers the henna blossoms that grew there, an association that she has with that place. These are not expensive or rare this time like the myrrh was. These flowers were abundant. They grew all over the place at Injeti. They were available to all who visited. Everyone could see them and enjoy them. The women delighted in taking these flowers and making garlands with them and putting them around their neck or putting them in their hair. They enjoyed the fragrance as well as the beauty. Burroughs says, To persons familiar with these beautiful and fragrant clusters, nothing could be more expressive of the loveliness of the presence of another, even of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could we express otherwise or more intelligibly than by these emblems the apprehension had of Jesus as lodged in our hearts by his love, and of the love as hoarded by us, and the source of inexpressible pleasure, as grateful not merely in public, like the incense burning on the altar, but in private, withdrawn from society. Here is the emblem, brothers and sisters, of Christ as life in the wilderness. We were at Polly's Cove this past week, and we were walking on the place where there was only rock. But then there is a little crack with flowers growing up from the rock. What a marvelous picture this is of our husband, King Jesus, an oasis in the desert associated with the flowers there. He brought life to this world, flowers where there was only death. We were dead and now we are alive. We live in a dry and barren world. It is a world that is dead in trespasses and sins, alienated and cut off from God, without God and without hope in the world. He is the one who broke into this world with life where there was no life. The first fruits of the new creation, the only source of light, righteousness, and eternal life. To us who have come to him for eternal life, he is a flower in the wilderness. He is life and beauty in the place where there is only perversity and death. By our marriage to him, our debt of sin is paid. Though, though many refuse it, this life is not hidden at all. It is not like the myrrh that was something rare and precious and that few could obtain. This is a flower that was available for all to see. It stands out unmistakably as an oasis in a desert, an oasis full of vineyards and henna blossoms. Such are the delightful associations that we have with Jesus, our husband, our Savior. How happy we are with him. From his table we receive what is refreshing, what is pleasant, what is nourishing, what is lasting, what is delightful. And in receiving that, it produces from us spikenard, this sweet fragrance in the place where there was once bitterness and anxiety and malice and covetousness and death, the stench of these things. It is his, in his grace we emerge as a delightful bride to him who cherishes our husband 
in whom we delight. Our affection fills the place where he is near, when he is at his table, with the frag with a fragrance that fills the room. To us he is precious beyond all others, an aroma that we cherish and that we keep near to our hearts. To us his is a righteousness and life in the wilderness, where otherwise there is only sin and death and barrenness. Thanks be to our God. Please stand and let's give thanks to him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, how we praise you, Lord, for what you have done for us. How we praise you that you have come, Lord Jesus, into this world, the only Son of God, and you have taken flesh that you might associate with us who are dark, who are lowly, and yet now made lovely by you. You have come, Lord, in all of your, from all of your glory and splendor and humbled yourself to live among men. You came here and you fulfilled all righteousness. You were made as one under the law, one representing us, another Adam, the last Adam, a new Adam, one who could represent us before the throne of grace, one who as our priest could offer yourself for us, one who as our king could reign for us and conquer all of our enemies, conquer the sin in our life that we might submit to you, one who as our prophet brought light into the darkness that we were dwelling in. Oh Lord, how we praise you that our marriage to you is a life-giving marriage. It is a debt-paying marriage. It is a invigorating, pleasant, delightful marriage. It is a marriage that brings out from us the love that ought to be there toward you and toward one another. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would draw near to the table of our Lord that we would come to him in all of the ordinances that he has given us, the table that he has given us to sit at, the table of the word of God preached and the provision that is there, the table of the word of God read, the table of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and of baptism, the table of the prayers that we come like Esther and make our petitions to the king. We come and we are heard We put a, we, at the banquet. We praise you, O Lord, that we come and give praise to you, that we we not only express our delight, but we also learn of our delight in the songs that you have given us. We learn of the proper expression of that delight, of, of who you are and how you are to be praised. And Father, we pray then that, that you would bless all of these ordinances to us, that you would bless the table fellowship that we have with you, that it would bring forth from us that fragrance that you delight in, that spike nerd. Oh, Father, we're, we're tired. We're tired of the bitterness. We're tired of the malice. We're tired of the coldness. We're tired of all of the things that are, are so ugly and so displeasing to you. We're tired of the, the insubordination and the resistance toward, toward your calling and your will as our husband. Father, Purge these things from our life. 
and replace it with the sweet fragrance of the spikenard. Oh, Father, bring this forth from your church all over the world, Lord. Your church is in a bad way, O Lord. The professing people of God, just as they have so many times been, there is so little regard for you, so little outpouring of our lives for you, so much coldness and indifference. There is anxiety among people who have you as their God. There is bitterness in those that have you as their God. There is anger. There is resentment. There is hopelessness and despair. Father, these things ought not to be. Oh, Lord, we look to you, O oh Lord. Fill us with the riches of your grace. Bring forth, draw forth from us the affection that Mary had for Jesus. We praise you, O oh Lord, for the example that you told us to always remember of the ointment poured forth for her Lord, for her, her husband, for her master, and of your delighted response in what she did. She was rejoicing, and so were you. Oh, Father, may we not be as those jealous ones who see someone that truly loves you and resent it and are cold toward it. Oh, Father, deliver us from such frigidness, from such cold hardness, O Lord, and make us an affectionate bride. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have that if we are in Christ, that he will do this work in us, that he is presently doing this work in us. If we simply come to him and place ourselves into his saving hands, we come to him and we say, Lord, save me, take me, wretched man that I am, deliver me from this body of death. We praise you, O Lord, that you will do that work in us. And it is certain that work will not be partially done. It will be complete. The day will come when we will love him as we should, when we will love you, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, work in us now and bring forth that sweet fragrance that it might characterize our lives, that it might fill the places that we go, that it especially might fill the room when we are gathered to, to worship you in public worship. Oh, Father, work in us. Do what only you can do. And we will be glad. Oh, Lord, we will honor you. We will bring forth praise to you. Thank you for the inheritance that you have promised to us as your bride, that we would be with you in your house forever. We think of a man coming to his, his wife and telling, I want you to be with me forever. I want you to live in my house. I want you to, be, uh, to love me and I will love you forever. Oh, Lord, how we thank you. We praise you. We praise you for these things and for what you have done. Oh, Lord, bless your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.